You're listening to Bad Bets, a podcast from the Wall Street Journal that unravels big business dramas that have had a big impact on our world. This first season chronicles the collapse of Enron. I'm John Imschweiler. We've heard a lot about the two men whose decisions seem to precipitate Enron's downfall. CEO Jeff Skilling with his grand plans and CFO Andy Fastow with his financial engineering. But the biggest problem for the company wasn't that Fastow was enriching himself or that Skilling had suddenly quit. It was that Enron's success was dependent on an image that was partly a facade. And when we started pulling back the curtain, everything came tumbling down. Stay with us. Join the Wall Street Journal's Tech Live Cybersecurity on June 6, 2024, in New York City, to be at the forefront of shaping the future of cybersecurity and creating a more secure digital landscape. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. Enron's final weeks at the end of 2001 were, well, a bit of a blur. To get some perspective and really explain everything that went into the collapse, we need to go back a bit. Back to before CFO Andy Fastow's firing, when we had more questions than answers. In early September 2001, my Wall Street Journal colleague, Rebecca Smith, and I were digging into Enron and those very suspicious-looking LJM partnerships that Fastow had been running. It appeared Enron was using these outside partnerships to hide losses and keep earnings growing. Jim Timmons, the former Enron employee turned whistleblower, was our best lead. He said he had internal documents. It's one of the most beautiful phrases any reporter can ever hear. He gave us those documents. Rebecca and I thought we're on our way to immersing ourselves in a pretty big story. Then 9-11 happened. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. CNN Center. I was still at home that morning in Los Angeles when a friend called with the awful news. We just saw another plane coming in from the side, so that's the second explosion. So this looks like it is some sort of a concerted effort to attack the World Trade Center that is underway. As a journal reporter, the terrorist attack was both a momentous news event and a personal one. The paper's New York headquarters was a short walk from the Twin Towers. When they fell, the journal office was badly damaged and had to be evacuated. A WSJ editor, John Bussey, described it on CNBC. We were so close to the building that the, you could feel it hitting your shoulder as, you, uh, as it ran, rained down, but we were on the safe side of the building. Friends and colleagues scattered across New York City and New Jersey somehow got the paper out that night. Our in-run investigation went on the back burner. But 9-11 hadn't just shaken the country emotionally and politically. It had also shaken investor confidence. And Enron was heading for trouble. About a month later, on October 16th, the Enron story started heating up again. This is just a week before Enron CFO Andy Fastow would be canned. You heard about that in the last episode. Rebecca and I wrote one story and another and another. That was our job, after all. And after each story, Enron's stock price fell further. Executives would deny or deflect, projecting transparency, but giving us little or nothing. Quickly, their reputation came apart. 
faith in the company crumbled, creating a panic in the market. And finally, a run on the bank that sealed Enron's fate. In a matter of weeks, Enron would fall from a Wall Street darling into bankruptcy. I was done. I mean, how can you recommend a stock with all those risks involved? At that point, I wasn't even wondering, like, what am I going to do next? It was just like, um, have you ever been in a car accident? It was from rags to riches, back to rags. You're listening to season one of Bad Bets, the story of Enron's collapse. This is episode four, The Downfall. Let's start on October 16th, 2001. That was the day Enron announced its third quarter earnings. Rebecca and I eagerly read through the press release. It contained some bombshells and some puzzles. But what actually came out on that October 16th was way worse than what we expected. This was a company that was supposedly firing on all cylinders. And yet, clearly, this report showed that it had a lot of financial problems. What they actually reported that day was a loss of $618 million. A loss of $618 million. Hardly great news. But it wasn't just the loss that hooked us. They were reporting the, quote, early termination of certain structured finance arrangements with a previously disclosed entity. Very vague language that really left us wondering what it was that had happened. It sounded to us like they were talking about the outside partnerships Fastow had set up to help Enron's finances, LJM. By that point, We knew the LJM operation had done hundreds of millions of dollars in business with Enron. But how much of the giant loss was tied to those partnerships? And what exactly were those deals? With deadlines looming, we needed answers fast. We knew we needed to talk to Ken Lay. He had recently returned as Enron's CEO after his protege, Jeff Skilling, suddenly quit in August. Rebecca had interviewed Lay several times over the past few years. Ken Lay was always a very affable congenial, polite person to talk with. So she got him on the phone. The conversation with Ken Lay started out as these conversations always did, in a very amiable fashion. He said he was happy to talk with me again. He sounded happy, until Rebecca got to the point. She asked about the losses in the earnings report and if they were related to Fastow's partnerships. And he gave a rather disjointed and confusing answer. And I tried to come back at it again. I said, I don't understand what this is. What is this structured finance deal? Does it have a name? He would not give a name. Said he wasn't sure it had one. I mean, you can't do business with something unless it has a legal name. Lay fumbled around a bit longer. And then... It sounded like he put his hand over the receiver because the the sound became muffled. And I could hear him asking someone nearby, what's the name of the thing? Then he came back on and he apologized. And he said again, he didn't know if it had a name. And I thought, give me a break. How can something generate millions of dollars worth of losses and not have a name? Rebecca kept pressing. And he kind of cut me off mid-sentence and he said, that's about all we're going to say on that. It made me angry, quite frankly. Did Ken Lay really not know? Or was he simply not going to talk about it? Rebecca and I later learned 
that the subject of all this back and forth was the Raptors, the memorable name of four entities that were used to hedge large transactions between Enron and Fastow's LJM partnerships, using Enron's own stock to protect the company from having to report large losses, a sort of shell game involving hundreds of millions of dollars. These Raptors were what Enron official Sharon Watkins had discovered in those spreadsheets. It told us that the losses in the earnings report were most definitely related to the Andy Fastell partnerships, and that Ken Lay seemed to have no idea what was going on. How much Lay and other Enron execs knew about the Raptors and Fastow's outside partnerships in general would soon become grist for criminal investigators. In later federal court testimony, Lay claimed he'd barely heard of the Raptors during his Enron years and thought about them hardly at all. He said he didn't realize they, quote, were going to become so important in the history of Enron and the history of this era. But all that came later. Back on October 16th, Lay still seemed in control. And there was still some magic in Enron's name. The stock actually rose in value after that earnings report, even though it was a disaster. It rose to nearly $34 a share, but it would never be that high again. Something neither investors nor Rebecca and I would have predicted at that point. After her conversation with Ken Lay, Rebecca and I wrote a story about that big Enron loss. The article that ran the next day included as much as we knew about the Andy Fastow partnerships at that point in time, how the outside entities were tied to Enron, and how Fastow stood to make millions of dollars from the arrangement. That story ran the next day, October 17th. And it earned me a call from a short seller, a type of investor who profits by speculating that the price of a stock will fall. He told me we missed something big. In a call with analysts, Ken Lay had briefly mentioned that Enron had cut its shareholder equity by $1.2 billion. Shareholder equity is one of the ways in which you determine the value of an enterprise. It's the amount you'd get if you liquidated a company's assets and paid off its debts. So in this case, Enron had reported that its value was $1.2 billion less. That reduced the company's reported value by about 10%. So that's a lot of money. I mean, anything in the billions is real money. Enron hadn't disclosed the reduction in its earnings release. It seemed, to Rebecca and me at least, as if they were trying to slide it in without anyone noticing. We felt that Enron had not been forthright about it, that it had sort of been hidden. And it was yet another example of where they, you know, had earlier on said they were going to try to be more transparent, but in fact, they were still anything but transparent. Rebecca got on the phone with Enron's chief accounting officer, Rick Causey. He said the equity reduction was, in fact, connected to Fastow's partnerships. Causey declined to be interviewed for this podcast. As we later learned, Enron had made a mistake in how it accounted for the stock it used in those Raptor hedging transactions. The error made it seem that Enron had more total equity than it did. Enron execs had discovered that error and then corrected it. But it meant that for months, investors had been told the company was worth more than it really was. We wrote up a story on that reduction that ran on October 18th. The stock fell nearly 10% to $29. This was on a stock that was already valued at much less than it had been a year earlier. This quickly became a pattern. 
We wrote articles about Enron, sharing new information about its tangled finances, and the market seemingly reacted. I think we had the feeling that there were more bad days ahead for Enron. We didn't understand their earnings thoroughly enough, and they weren't giving us straightforward answers. Enron's reputation was starting to erode. And we both wondered, where would that erosion end? Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com F-O-E-F podcast to secure your spot. The Enron story was picking up momentum. They had just announced a $1.2 billion equity rejection, and we learned it was connected to Andy Fastow's troubling LJM partnerships. And the next domino to fall was a big one. On Friday, October 19th, we wrote a story about Fastow making up to $11 million on the outside partnerships. At this point, he'd exited the partnerships, but was still working as Enron's CFO. But as you might remember, that story attracted the attention of Enron's board of directors. Soon after, board members inquired about that tidy sum and learned that the real number was more than four times that amount. And one of the directors who was part of that conversation He's sitting there listening to this and he's thinking, oh my gosh, but he writes down on a pad of paper a single word. Incredible. Yep. Andy Fastow had banked $45 million. Pretty incredible. And Enron's board members weren't the only ones who had started asking more questions. When I got in the office on Monday, we're now at October 22nd, a colleague told me that it looked like the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, had started reading our stories. The SEC is the cop of the stock market. It can subpoena records, file suits, and fine companies. That day, Enron had put out a press release announcing that the SEC was launching an informal inquiry into Fastow's partnerships. It means that they have suspicions that there may be something illegal that's been going on, that people may have been misleading investors. In the press release, Enron said it was cooperating and that it welcomed the inquiry. But the SEC probe was clearly bad news. Enron's stock price dropped another 20% that day. Which is sort of shocking. It had really gone down. To be honest, the SEC inquiry made us feel validated. I think it sort of confirmed that we really were on to something. I don't honestly think we had any doubt at that point. At Enron headquarters in Houston, execs were scrambling to stabilize the company. Their shot came the next day, October 23rd, on a conference call with analysts and others, including Rebecca and me. Enron's stock had tumbled nearly 40% over the past week. Investors seemed spooked. Many wanted answers. Carol Cole was one of the analysts on that call. Management was extremely defensive. Ken Lay was not his jovial, likable, charismatic self. Ken Lay blamed the Wall Street Journal. In fact, he would later say in court, that he thought the LJM partnerships and the Raptor transactions were, quote, all history. But because of our stories, they'd become news. 
And he said that was driving down the stock price, even though the company was doing, quote, extremely well. There was a lot of discussion on that call about LJM. In fact, I think that's what the call was primarily centered on. Lay sought to smooth over concerns. Sure, Enron had posted losses and reduced shareholders' equity, but he said there was still plenty of cash to operate the business. Big parts of the company were doing well. He reiterated that Vasto had cut ties with the partnerships, and he expressed, quote, the highest faith and confidence in Andy. But to Enron's PR guy, Mark Palmer, things weren't going well. It was painful to listen to. Ken Lay was doing yeoman's work trying to fix things, and it clearly wasn't working. It wasn't flying. He wasn't in command of the answers, or he wasn't willing to share them. I thought we fumbled it, and I felt like by that point, we should have had better answers. Prosecutors would later allege that on that October 23rd call, Lay knew Enron was in bad shape, but chose to hide it. Lay died in 2006. While alive, he denied any wrongdoing, but was ultimately convicted of fraud. Because he died before he was able to appeal, his conviction was automatically vacated. That conference call might have been Enron's last chance to change the narrative. And everyone we talked to at the time thought the company had blown it. Trust is at the heart of everything. And once a company has lost that trust, it's extremely hard to get it back. I'm really not even sure they ever can get it back. The call wasn't just a PR disaster. It triggered real consequences with the market. Carol Cole, the prudential analyst, had had enough. I was done. I mean, how can you recommend a stock with all those risks involved? They didn't give us much more information on how they were going to make money going forward. Cole dropped her stock rating for the first time since 1994, from a buy to a sell. Those were dark days. They were in a hole and they were still digging. On the day after the call, October 24th, Enron pulled a 180 and removed Fastow as CFO. You heard about that in the last episode. Dumping the top financial officer is rarely good news for a company, especially since Lay had just heaped praise on Fastow the day before. The stock fell again. In just eight days since the October 16th earnings report, Enron's stock had dropped by over 50%, from nearly $34 a share to about $16. As October started heading to November, Enron's troubles kept mounting, and the story kept getting bigger, fed partly by information we were picking up and partly by startling actions and admissions from Enron. Now, maybe some people saw where it was all headed. Me, I was just swimming as hard as I could to keep up with events and ahead of the competition. By this point, Rebecca and I were pretty much working seven days a week. It was taking up so much time that my 13-year-old daughter could barely stand to hear the name Enron without getting angry at me. And maybe at Ken Lay. Same with Rebecca. There was always news coming out, something being announced, some SEC filing. There was always something that would come out of the blue and you'd get clobbered with it time and again. We were putting out stories pretty much every day. Lay would later say in court that he thought we were on a witch hunt. Mark Palmer saw firsthand the stress that Lay was under. I know it was really tough on him. I just happened to, you know, go up to his office for, I don't remember what it was, 
but his wife brought him lunch. He had a hard time eating, and I think Linda was there to make sure he got something to eat. Then Enron executives made a move they hoped would bolster confidence in the company. They used almost all their credit lines to pull in $3 billion in cash. Enron said the move showed that the company, quote, has the support of its banks and more than adequate liquidity. To Rebecca, it had the whiff of desperation. Drawing down the credit lines is a sign of distress, and it's happening in a period in which there are other problems that are clearly on the horizon. This cash grab didn't exactly support Enron's claims that it had the money needed to continue operating. It seemed to signal worse things to come. I remember at the time watching the stock price drop. That's sort of a barometer of confidence. And it was sort of sickening to watch. The company appeared to be in free fall. Enron's future looked darker by the minute. And we happened to have another big story in the works about another partnership in Fastow's world, one called Chuko. Join the Wall Street Journal in New York City on June 6, 2024, for the inaugural Tech Live Cybersecurity to network and hear from leading cybersecurity experts across a variety of sectors on how to combat cybersecurity threats, mitigate crippling attacks, and safeguard privacy on the individual and organizational level. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. In the public and in the press, the heat was ratcheting up for Enron execs. And inside the company, people were sweating. We have to answer a lot of these very basic questions that people have. It was a full court press. There was a, you know, there was a lot of pressure on the business. And it fell on Mark Palmer, Enron's PR head, to be the middleman. Besides the barrage of calls from reporters, Palmer was also getting pressure from Lay to make the bad press coverage disappear. We had a conversation where he said, you know, Mark, what are you doing to get the journal to quit writing those articles? You've got to try to, you know, turn the coverage around. And I just told him I didn't think that was going to happen. He was pulling every lever he could, and I was one of them. He says Lay pushed him to somehow stop the journal stories, as if Palmer had that power, and as if all Enron had was a PR problem. You think for a while, gosh, what if this is my fault? What if I just can't make the case to these journalists that their reporting is 180 degrees off and and it's my fault that the stock has gone down, et cetera. And I have to admit, I went to bed several times thinking that. Palmer says things came to a head for him, partly due to a call from me. Well, so when did you personally start thinking something might be seriously wrong at the company? I mean, you know, that, that, that might even threaten his existence. Oh, that was October 25th. And it's all your fault, John. Uh, you, <laughs> you, you called me. I thought it was asking about Chuko. And I went to ask someone about it and, you know, couldn't get a straight answer. And then I asked a few more people and they said, oh, that might be a problem. Chuko, 
That was another partnership with Ties to Fastow, the now deposed CFO. The name was a Star Wars reference to Chewbacca. At the time, all Rebecca and I knew about Chuko was that it was a deal involving hundreds of millions of dollars and was run by a top Fastow lieutenant. The thing that struck Palmer about the partnership was that no one at Enron seemed to know much about Chuko. And I thought, if John M. Schweiler knows more about what's going on with a financial vehicle at Enron than our own people do, then we really do have troubles. There were a lot of people in the company that didn't know what the heck was going on. How was he supposed to answer our questions? He decided to call a meeting of the company's top brass to get to the bottom of things. Palmer was a VP, but he was outranked by several of the people he called into that meeting. Still, Palmer says he was feeling enough pressure to take some risks. As I went down to the meeting room, uh, I got nauseous and thought I was going to throw up. And, you know, I'd, I'd never felt that way before. He stopped in the bathroom. My mouth filled with saliva, and I just kind of stood over the sink and nothing happened. And I, you know, my face was really hot. My eyes were watering. I splashed a bunch of water in my face and dried my face off and walked out of the restroom. By now, Palmer was running late to his own meeting. By the time I got in there, there there weren't any seats around the table. He ended up sitting on the floor, looking up at some of Enron's top execs, led by Ken Lay. Ken was getting more and more frustrated. I think Ken was asking, what the hell is going on around here? Uh, I, I got angry and said, I'll tell you what's going on. The Wall Street Journal knows more about what's going on at your company than you do, and that's gotta stop. Ken left that meeting and said that, uh, you know, we're gonna start finding out what's going on around here. Another person at the meeting confirmed Palmer's account. This person added that at one point, the meeting seemed very surreal. Lay would say in later court testimony that he didn't know what Chuko was at the time. He also said Chuko was the first revelation for him that there might be a problem with Enron's accounting. Federal prosecutors would later argue that Lay knew far more about Enron's problems than he was letting on. Soon after, Lay and Enron's board formed a special committee to investigate Fastow's partnership world. To this day, I still wonder how much Lay was really seeking answers or simply seeking cover from the gathering storm. For years, he hadn't been as involved in Enron's nitty-gritty as Skilling or other senior execs, but he was CEO for almost the entire history of the company, and he approved some pretty outrageous maneuvers. It seemed everyone was now trying to get to the bottom of Fastow's partnerships. We reporters, the SEC, and now Enron's own top brass, Understanding Chuko felt like it would help us untangle why this once leading company was being brought to its knees. Enron hadn't released anything about it. Chuko was a tough one to do any reporting on because you didn't find many references to it anywhere. I became mildly obsessed with learning more. Picking up a bit from a Texas state record here, a hint from an SEC filing there. Chuko appeared to be another outside entity created to boost Enron's reported earnings and lower its reported debt. More financial engineering. So Chuko was, you know, one example of this larger problem of financial engineering. Enron had used this vehicle as a way of keeping some of its debt off its balance sheet. In other words, making the company look like it had less debt than it really did. 
it had allowed Enron to claim earnings that didn't really exist. This wasn't real money that it had made. It was play money. On November 5th, we published what we knew about Chuko. Three days later, we learned a lot more. In an SEC filing, Enron said that because of an accounting mistake back in 1997, Chuko never qualified as an independent entity. For that and other reasons, the company's financial statements for the previous four years were inaccurate. The company was restating its earnings from 1997 to 2000. It was astonishing. They were rewriting their financial history. This was yet another major revelation from Enron that things were not the way they had been represented. In restating earnings, it wound up subtracting almost 20% of its total earnings it had to basically wipe out. And not only did it decrease its earnings, but it also then loaded more debt back up on the company. The company had to absorb hundreds of millions of dollars of Chuco-related debt. The company had to admit that it had released false numbers during that time period, multi-year time period. They'd been claiming earnings that didn't exist. They'd been hiding debt that was there. These are cardinal sins. You basically felt like you couldn't trust anything that they'd told you in the past. Everything was subject to re-examination and possible revision. In a few weeks, Enron had posted a $618 million loss and had an equity reduction almost twice that amount. It was getting the SEC's attention, tapped almost all of its credit lines, had fired its CFO Andy Fastow, and now this. For the first time, Rebecca and I had a feeling this could be the end. Chuko and the restatement it triggered were the final steps in the irreversible loss of faith in Enron. By this time, Enron's rating had been downgraded by the major credit agencies, and they were eyeing it for further downgrades. If the downgrades were big enough, Enron would face big debt repayments and no longer have access to capital for their giant trading operation. And that could quickly snowball into a run on the bank. Like the banking panics of the Great Depression. A run on the bank is when everyone goes to withdraw their money from the bank at once, because they don't believe the bank is solvent. In Enron's case, if enough lenders called in their loans and enough trading partners stopped extending credit to do deals, well, there just wouldn't be enough cash to go around. Talk of a collapse was now growing by the day. On November 28th, the company's credit rating was downgraded to junk status. Basically, a warning to lenders that Enron might not be able to repay its debts. This was the thing Enron execs had feared. Now, the end was only a matter of time. At that point, I think we knew the company was going to file for bankruptcy. There didn't seem to be any other option. Finally, on Sunday, December 2nd, just under seven weeks since the earnings report that started this downward spiral. Enron now has filed for bankruptcy. If a judge approves, it will be the biggest corporate bankruptcy ever. Stock in the once mighty Enron Corporation now heading into Chapter 11 closed today at 40 cents a share. 40 cents a share. In August, it was over $40 a share. Rebecca was at home when she got a phone call confirming the bankruptcy filing. Its list of creditors was 54 single-spaced pages. 
So this was a massive bankruptcy filing. The company listed $50 billion in assets and $40 billion in debt. A company of this size had never collapsed. It just seemed astonishing that the thing could have disappeared so fast. And it was clear that there would be tremendous fallout. It wasn't just Enron that was hurt. The entire energy industry was badly damaged. Things never went back to the way they were before Enron filed for bankruptcy. They were permanently changed. It seemed like, even its failure, Enron had to be epic. Enron had reshaped energy markets. It was once the world's largest energy trader. And then, almost in the blink of an eye, it was gone. However, at the time, CEO Ken Lay managed to keep projecting optimism. Here's Enron's head of HR, Cindy Olson. I remember Ken saying, we're going to be the fastest company to come out of bankruptcy ever. But Lay would later say in court that he was, in fact, devastated by the bankruptcy, that nothing in his life caused the type of enduring pain that the collapse did. And it wasn't just the shock of bankruptcy. For many, it was the financial ruin to so many people that came with it. The next morning, Monday, December 3rd, 2001, Enron training manager Carl Clicker went to work, almost like it was any other day. For weeks, rumors had been swirling about layoffs. But that morning, the rumors became reality. Turning your laptop, turning your cell phone, turning your pager, go to the conference room assigned to your department and wait for your leader. Some people said, well, they're going to call some of us back. And other people said, no, we're gone. Finally, their boss walked in. He said, we've all been laid off. Uh, Go home, don't re-enter the building, and you'll be notified by phone if we need you back. And that was the last I heard from Enron. Even though Clicker knew layoffs might be coming, nothing had prepared him for that moment. I felt numb, and I saw all the TV cameras, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, out by the front doors. I did not want to be part of that. There were hundreds and hundreds of people walking out with their boxes and dropping laptops in a bin, dropping their cell phones in a bin uh, as they're walking out the door. At that point, I wasn't even wondering, like, what am I going to do next? It was just like, have you ever been in a car accident? 4,000 Enron employees lost their jobs. It was just weeks before the holidays. And they weren't just out of work. Many were out of their life savings. Soon after, a number of former Enron employees testified about this in Congress. Here's Janice Farmer. This was my life savings, my nest egg. We lived, ate, slept, and breathed Enron because we were owners of the company. My life savings is gone. In the end, I received a check for $20,418. That's all that was left. Charles Prestwood. I had all my savings, everything in Enron stock. I lost $1.3 million. It was from rags to riches, back to rags. And Enron shareholder, Mary Bain Pearson. I'm just a pebble in the stream, a little bitty shareholder. I didn't lose millions. I didn't even lose a billion. 
But what I did lose seems like a billion to me. I was proud of the reporting work Rebecca and I had done on Enron, but I was also acutely aware of the damage that coverage had helped trigger. So was Rebecca. I thought then and think now that the fall of Enron is a tragedy, that lots of people were hurt by it, and lots of honest people who worked at Enron wound up losing everything. The human toll was tremendous, and it was based on things that only a handful of people had done. Employees were upset and looking for someone to blame. There was so much anger. And they weren't the only ones. In the next weeks and months, the company's collapse would become something of a national obsession. Congressional hearings, a special Department of Justice task force, and eventually criminal indictments against not just Enron execs, but also against some who helped them or failed to stop them. When I think about the Enron investigation, it's really easy to think of it as it's about the corruption of Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling and Andy Fastow. But that, to me, is not the lesson of Enron. Enron, to me, is a lesson about the enablers of how did all of these systems not catch it. That's next time on Bad Bets. This episode of Bad Bets was hosted by me, John M. Schweller. The original reporting on which this season is based was done by Rebecca Smith and me. Bad Bets is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This season was produced in collaboration with Neon Hum Media. From The Wall Street Journal, Kateri Yoakum is the executive producer of this podcast. Dan Rosen is the co-executive producer of WSJ Studios. Anthony Galloway is the global head of video and audio at The Wall Street Journal. From Neon Hum Media, Muna Danish and Haley Fager reported, wrote, and produced this season. Nafila Cato is the associate producer. Story editing by Annie Gilbertson and Vikram Patel. Sammy Allison is the production manager. Sound design and engineering by Scott Somerville. And the executive producers from Neon Hum are Shara Morris and Jonathan Hirsch. This episode was fact-checked by Justin Klosko. The theme song and many of the tracks you hear in this series were composed by Hansdale Sue. The other music in this season of Bad Bets is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John M. Schweller. Thanks for listening.